0: Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. My name is Simon from Fundraising Everywhere and Everywhere Plus. In July 2020, Fundraising Everywhere hosted the first ever fundraising conference curated by and for people of color. A curator for the event was Martha Awajobi, a consultant uh, who was voted in Fundraising Magazine's 25 Most Outstanding Fundraisers under the age of 35. She's also one of the organizers of the charity So White. In this event, we had over 12 hours of authentic, engaging and inspiring discussions to change the charity sector, to root out racism and create fairer ways of working for all. You can find all of our events at fundraisingeverywhere.com and use the discount code FEPODCAST for a special treat.
1: Hi, my name is Martha and I am the curator and host of the first Fame fundraising conference. I spent two weeks doing consultations with fundraisers across the UK who are people of colour and BAME led organisations to find out what they were looking for in a conference programme that would be by them and for them. So we have the most incredible lineup of POC talent across the sector. Um, we have inspirational stories of fundraisers who have succeeded against the odds. We have practical tips and the networks that you will need to boss your career as a person of colour and as a white person. This is not just for people of color, this is for anybody who wants to learn how to do amazing fundraising, anybody who wants to know how to support their staff and how to build truly inclusive cultures. Hello, um, we're back. I hope everyone had a really lovely break um, and now we are ready for our power sessions. Um, we're gonna get things moving really swiftly. And um, So today we have first up um, our first power session, which I'm really excited about um, because we've got Sabah, Uh, Sabra and I are both organisers at Charity So White, and I'm so glad that you're going to get to witness all of the magic and wisdom from this incredible lady that I get to spend so much time with. Hello.
2: (laughs) Hi, everybody. Um, Firstly, a huge thank you um, to the amazing Martha and Cam for hosting such an amazing conference. It's such a privilege to know and work alongside you both. And seeing you thrive in these last few weeks has really just given me a lot of joy. And I I just hope you both know how proud and how grateful everybody is for your work. I'm just realizing that you can all see my laundry in the (laughs) background, but that's okay. It is what it is. Um, I have to admit that I am like really quite nervous today. Um, And by somehow about talking about imposter syndrome, I have somehow already been found out. Um, And the truth is, is that, you know, if you had spoken to me even four months ago, I would have told you that imposter syndrome is definitely not something that I have to deal with, that I am not one of those women, which is a terrible Mm -hmm. thing to say. But that's like the truth of my internal narrative. Um, I've been on such a journey since then um, to really grapple with what that means for me and what it means for my peers. And today I'm hoping to share some of that journey with you and hope start some of what I hope will be many conversations to come about this. Just to kick off a little bit about me, um, I'm 33 years old. I'm a British Pakistani woman. Um, When I was five years old, my mother escaping Liberian civil war and her marriage came to the UK with like one suitcase under her arm and like me under the other. Um, I grew up uh, in a working class South Asian community in West London. my mother was a trained microbiologist, but she couldn't find a job that would pay enough to cover both our expenses and childcare. And so we lived on welfare for almost all of my childhood. You know, She told me from an early age, the old adage that I think we all know so well, which is you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And she yeah. really instilled in me a desire for excellence and a belief that despite what everybody says, I could be whatever the hell I wanted to be. And like, even then at a young age. It was really odd sort of looking back at it because I knew that my success was never just going to be for me. Um, Local families in my community, I I, should you not, guys, they had my GCSE results pinned on their fridge doors. Um, I needed to, I was told that I was succeeding not just for myself, but because I was pushing through barriers, through barriers to everybody who came behind me. And I was the proof. for not just my community but also this like neoliberal ideology that education will, will, will save us from ourselves um, and I was a stick that people used to uh, used to ask others in my community you know why they hadn't done more and you know look, I was told to be a fighter I was confident I was decisive and I was crushing it I was one of the most junior partners at my consulting firm. I was bringing in twice as much money as people who were 10 years my senior, and in silence, absolute silence, I was completely unraveling. I had, I think, a mental breakdown midway through my 20s. Um, I was second guessing everything. I was like borderline paranoid about what I was doing. I worked 24 hours a day. I sacrificed relationships to meet some arbitrary, nebulous expectation that I was increasingly unable to articulate. But at the time, I put this down to stress, and I was like, I need a new job. I'm in a crisis. I'll do all consulting since you all do an MBA um, and like, I tried to start afresh um, and when I started looking for jobs in the charity sector it took me six months um, to do so and all my friends are like how can a Wharton grad not get an MBA, got not you know get a job it's not entirely helpful friends just if you're listening <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> and like eventually I got a job at the advocacy academy where I'm still at now and like, it's a job that I absolutely love but like, this is a secret that I think actually only a few people know about me. She said, "Look, in two years, I quadrupled our income. I brought in enough money last year alone to cover the cost of all of our core and flagship programs for the next three years. And then December, like just a few months back, despite having achieved all of this, I went. I managed to persuade myself that I was going into. When I, mean, I went into my performance management review, I, I, I shit, you know, like I was, I was uh, thought I was going to get fired." Um, I like, cried to my partner before I went in. I was like trying to like steep myself up to manage the inevitable expectation that I was not going to get anything else. And instead, mm-hmm. of course, I wasn't fired. Um, I was given a raise, and I was asked to step up as acting CEO. And that, for the first time, was a real flag for me. I was like, how, if I look at this arbitrarily, what was going through my mind that I managed to tell myself that I was not enough in that moment, and that somehow I would have had to have done more to feel safe? Um, the turning, there are lots of different other points to this, um, but the only one, there are two more that I want to mention, mm-hmm. which is that like, when my first week when I stepped up as acting CEO, I went to a conference that was talking about funding activism in our sector, and I wanted to emulate the provocative and agitational culture of the Advocacy Academy. I spoke against the apolitical stances of our funders, our obsession with risk, um, and our limitations of our current conversations. And an hour later, I overheard two white women talking to each other about how aggressive I was during the session and how little I understood the sector. Now, I had enough wherewithal to know in my head that they were talking, that that was just white fragility talking, and I can distance myself from it. But I was devastated. Like, in my heart, I was absolutely devastated. I felt ashamed. And I told myself um, that I should have known better than to suck my neck out like that. And the real turning point came for me a few weeks later um, when after hosting a hugely successful uh, charity event during COVID, um, our small, small events team at the time, we debriefed and we discussed that we always did what went well and what we could have done better. And each person in that call who had been speaking praised each other effusively and then critiqued themselves so harshly Um, They said things like, I'm a terrible speaker. I brought down the entire event. I never pick up on cues. I always forget to make this point, even though I know it's exactly the point that's going to happen. Because I am often that person, I was like, we're going to go around. Everybody has to say one good thing about themselves um, with the same energy that they had done for other people in the group. And I swear to God, like, you know, half of the group, I think we're ready to cancel me right there and then. And there's still like (laughs) like, a couple of other people, like they couldn't complete the exercise at all. And like for any of you who know some of the amazing people who I get to work with at Charity So White, you know that our team is full of the most amazing people, articulate, passionate, inspiring people. These are the narratives that they were telling themselves in their heads. Like what the hell was happening that these people who would like shifted the sector so dramatically we're feeling this way we're thinking this way and seeing it in some in these people who i admired so deeply i was finally able to name that pattern in myself and the more i started looking into this the angrier i became Mm -hmm. Uh, because we don't talk about this enough and like there are some like real bullshit bullshit conversations that happen around this and like let's start with the idea of like what it looks like what imposter syndrome looks like what it sounds like what it feels like like I am a confident, decisive person. I speak in like statements. Um, I rarely turn an opportunity down. If you give me a mic, I will say my piece until I'm done. But like on my best days, I have to remind myself that I am doing okay. The definition of imposter syndrome is that persistent inability to believe you're deserved, to believe your success is legitimate, and that is about shame and vulnerability. And like as much as anything else and it's it's rears its head when we can't be truly grateful for our success because we believe that it's only fleeting it comes when we're striving for excellence when that that desire for excellence tips over into perfectionism when you're Mm -hmm. crazy busy when you're numbing your pain when we are addicted and dependent on achieving this ideal that we blame ourselves so severely for each failing and like you know it comes when we fall into the trap of either Relinquishing control completely to avoid being caught out or trying to control everything to do exactly the same. It's the it's introspection. It's the gratitude you feel for getting interviews for jobs that you are overly qualified for. Um, And for me, it's the narrative in my head that tells me I haven't done enough. I'm going to get fired tomorrow. It's the six women in their early twenties who have changed the way the sector talks about race, berating themselves because they forgot one bullet point in the speech that they had memorized 10 minutes before.
0: Sorry to interrupt. This is Simon Scriver again from Fundraising Everywhere. Just wanted to remind you that you can find all of the recordings from this event uh, and all of our other events in video and podcast format at fundraisingeverywhere.com and use the discount code FEPODCAST for a special treat.
2: For those of you um, who read about imposter syndrome, who read about it before, you'll know there's a wealth of material out there. Um, But for me, it's really, it's like insufficient, right? Is it comforting to know that many successful people feel this way when women, black, brown and white? Absolutely. But generalizing that experience limits what it means, um, limits the, the meaning of imposter syndrome to something that we should be able to solve ourselves with the right coaching and support. The quote from Charity So White that always stood out for me was that at criminal justice networking events where everyone of colour is asked when they left prison? That's a quote from somebody who experienced racism in our sector. Our sector perpetuates and profits off the back of racial stereotypes, and we still remain shocked when we hear about it being perpetuating in our workplaces twice over compared to other industries. When the systems around us are reinforcing that voice of doubt and criticism in our minds, it is not enough to ask us to lean in and grab every opportunity that we can. When those around us hold biases and assume that if you wear a hijab, you're too meek for leadership. If you're Black, then you must have had lived experience to have gotten to where you are. That you're not good good enough for the diversity photo, not the leadership program. When you're doubted and undermined until time and again that your face, your hair, your accent is not leadership material. is no longer the voice in your head, it is is the voices around you, it is the voices inherent in the systems that you're working in. And let us be real, right? The women of color experience, when women of color experience imposter syndrome, it is the internalized manifestation of structural racism and sexism in our society. And it's because our society is the charity sector too, you know, let's not forget that despite being a sector with a huge percentage of women working in it, there is still gender diversity lack of gender diversity at the top of the pyramid and we are woefully behind every other UK sector in terms of BAME representation and cross leadership like this is about an intersection between race and gender for women of color in the sector so many people I've spoken to them are saying they're saying to me that imposter syndrome is getting worse with age and experience even as they get to grips with techniques to tackle it and that's because you know they're just fewer people the higher up you get, right? And I, I'm more and more conscious of the lack of infrastructure available to me. And you know, with racism increasingly on the agenda, I have this other burden of being rolled out as a firecracker to rally the crowd at the expense of my own career for a sector that has yet to the action on anything. Um, and the magic panacea that we tell ourselves, like that the sector is saying is going to fix all of this, is mentorship. And I'm like, fuck that shit. I'm not looking for a mentor, I'm looking for systemic change. It is not my voice, it is your voices. It's other people's voices that are telling me time and time again, that is making me internalize this. So instead, what I have been trying to do for the last few months, and I'd love to hear from anybody else who's been working through this as well, I use a frame that we often use at the Advocacy Academy. We have three spheres in our life, the personal, the professional, and the political. And for me, getting to grips with this has to involve all three. At a personal level it's practicing gratitude, it's booking in time for myself as much as the same energy I do for others, it means gleefully being selfish with my time, it means surrounding myself with people who challenge me but also back me 100% of the time, people who are proud of me. And like professionally for me it means going slow, it means checking in with myself on why I'm saying yes or why I'm saying no and it's becoming comfortable vulnerability and asking for help when I need it because I never used to ask for help before. I thought I had to all hold it myself. Um, and finally, um, politically, it means organizing for change. I'm a proud organizer with charity So White, but also a month ago, I launched a network for women and non-binary people of color in leadership in our sector. We've called it Bossing It, um, in our first event, I was in a room with 24 women of color CEOs in our sector and somebody said to me, I didn't know there were this many of us at all. Um, we talked about the pros and cons of sitting on a board, leading all white teams and the challenges and opportunities I could never even imagined. I felt supported. I felt like I was striding for like the first time in such a long time. And it was because of like knowing that I wasn't alone, knowing that I had peers, I was beginning to build something that was going to help me through. Um, I want this group to begin to build the infrastructure we need and to hold the space for each other and to support each other and to scream our lungs out to champion each other as far as we can. This is the first step of my journey. I'm only a few months in, but before I end, I want to briefly go back to the start of my story, to the families who stuck my GCSE results to their fridge doors. I feel that pride still today. It's a surge in my belly, but it's also a weight on my chest. When I go into work, I know that I am still, despite so many firsts ahead of me, one of the few. I'm still the only person of color in too many rooms. I'm still fighting the fight of anti-racism that my ancestors before me have done so. And when I look at my achievements, I know that I'm holding myself up to not only my own expectations, not only the ridiculousness of racism in our sector, but also the expectations that I know are my community can only, can't help but have for me. The community that raised me, who drove me to the doctor when my mother couldn't, the community taught me how to speak proper English when I was being bullied for not get, for getting my Vs and my Ws mixed up. And like, what does it mean to be enough for them? And that's a hard question. And I know that's a much more complicated one that I don't know I've figured out yet and I know that they will tell me that I'm plenty enough for them but that's something hard I have to figure out I know many of us are figuring out our own answers to that and I will say that the one thing for me is having been working through it for the last few months that that question has been getting lighter for me every day and I think it just starts with a with that first moment of admitting that this is something I can hold and something I can take forward with everybody else's help. But that is me. So I was like speaking at pace because I've got like 15 minutes, I've got to get it through it all. Um, but,
1: uh, Thank you, oh. you Saba, is all I have to say. Um, I am so honored to be an organizer with you, um, to have been in this session with you, to have been in this space with you um, and to constantly keep hearing how you are rising to your own like your own expectations your own challenges and and exceeding those and but doing that with such a level of vulnerability humility and um just sincerity and yeah I I just thank you for it in in this conversation in life um yeah thank you (laughs) um and yeah on that note I think I'm gonna pop over and introduce the next sessions but yeah, I don't know how everyone else is feeling. I'd really love if you shared all your thoughts in the chat because I'm feeling a emotional. I just want to introduce these sessions and like go take a break <laughs> um, because I resonated with everything that Saba said, um, many things that Sabba said in that um, conversation just then. Um, so yeah, please, please share how you're feeling in the chat. I think Sabba might ha- hang around for a little while um, and be able to kind of respond to any of the questions, comments, conversations that are happening in the chat at the moment as well. So yeah, thanks again. Sabha, I'll see you this evening for another meeting of organizing. <laughs> Take
0: care. Thank you so much for listening back to the recording of this. We hope you'll be able to join us for the live event next time. In the meantime, if you want to check out all of our events and look at all of the content we have available for instant access, then please go to fundraisingeverywhere.com. You can use the discount code FE Podcast for a special treat.